Well, we resume our studies in Hosea, uh, and we're going to look at Hosea verse 14 down to the end of chapter 3, which is a short chapter. So Hosea, so if you're struggling to find it, if you find Jeremiah or Ezekiel, which should be easy to find flicking through, then go forward to Daniel uh, and then Hosea. And before we read, let's pray again. Father, we thank you for this word, and again we ask that you'd come and uh, inhabit the thoughts of our minds, that we may meditate upon your word, and learn from it, and walk away from here with a sense of the wonder and glory of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it begins with uh, therefore, which I'll explain in a moment, but uh, let's read. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and this is Israel he's speaking of, I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her, and there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor uh, a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her her mouth, and they shall be be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day, with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And in that day... I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethech of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So the last time we looked at uh, Hosea was a couple of weeks ago, and uh, you may remember it was pretty dismal. 
when we looked at it. Uh, it's a very difficult uh, section from verse 2 through to 13. Um, and it's, uh, it's a pretty miserable kind of account of how Israel had uh, forgotten their God. And, you know, Israel has been in this covenant relationship with God. God has established a, a covenant relationship through a, a sequence of covenants uh, with Moses and then through David. And, um, and that, those covenants have certain expectations that God has put on the people of Israel. And it's, you know, that covenant relationship is kind of like a marriage relationship. That's, you know, when, you, when somebody gets married, when two people get married, they're entering into a covenant with each other. You know, they make the promises to each other to, till death you depart. It's a, it's a covenant bond that you're forming. And that's the picture of God's relationship to his people. And he enters into these covenant relationships. And yet Israel has forgotten her husband, if you like, and instead has gone to look for comfort in other lovers, uh, other gods, other idols uh, from the, the nations that are all around Israel at the time. So you can just imagine it. Here's this beacon of light with Israel worshipping the one true and living God in the temple. But gradually over time, uh, it gets infiltrated by pagan worship. And, and that becomes especially true in the northern kingdom, which splits off from the southern kingdom. And they no longer have access to the temple. So suddenly there's this inrush. Relatively suddenly there's this inrush of pagan worship. Uh, into Israel. And so they've forgotten their God. They've forgotten who they're worshipping. And, um, and therefore we find that last time God promised to act in judgment, uh, a kind of judgment of frustration that God would bring so that as Israel goes after these other lovers and seeks to attribute to those lovers all the blessings that, that she is enjoying and food and wine and so on, uh, it's actually going to be frustrating because it will never quite satisfy what she wants. And you know, the land will, be, will prove difficult. To, uh, the crops will be difficult. The, the yield will be difficult. Everything will be difficult. And so it's a judgment of frustration that comes, is going to come upon Israel. And, uh, and, of course, the reason for that, of, of course, is simply that they've forgotten the God who's given all these things. And that's what you see at the end of verse 13. That Israel went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. And so, you know, what that teaches us is that the, the options for God's people are either you, you know God and you seek to know him. And you draw near to him. You do everything you can to draw near to God. Or you drift away to these other lovers. That's what life is like. And it's true for us today as much as it was for them then. You either are drawing near to God or you're drifting to the world with all that it offers you. But in the end, which cannot ever satisfy you. And if that's your situation, then you're in great danger if you're, if you're seeking after the world and you're kind of forgetting God. It's dangerous. So, it's so quite a dismal section. 
that we've just been, we looked at last time. However, when we come to verse 14, the word of God moves now from accusation against the people of God to promise. And this is looking beyond the judgment and frustration. This is now looking beyond uh, to something greater. And we're going to explore that together a little bit here. That there will be an immediate temporal judgment, if you like, time-bound judgment that's going to come in the life of Israel. And, you know, a couple of decades after this is written, uh, Samaria will be overrun by the Assyrians. And that's part of the judgment of God. But beyond this, there is hope. uh, Hope for Israel. And for the simple reason that God's promises never fail. That God made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to David, and repeats his promises time and time again. And And what we learn is that in spite of the sins and failures of the people of God... God's promises will not fail, but will come to fruition. So this is what's underneath this. That though there seems to be a breakdown in the relationship here, and a kind of breaking of the marriage relationship at the hand of God, yet underneath it all, is the continuing promise of God that he's going to do what he said he would do. And so we'll see how that's going to play out for us. The, the passage, of, as you might guess, falls into two sections. The first is the, the remainder of chapter 2, 14 to 23. And it's about God's plan for cosmic renewal. And there's, okay, there's only one point, but there's several subheadings, which we'll get into. And then the second passage is more specifically about God's redemption and the restoration of his people uh, in, in chapter 3, 1 to 5. So first of all, is, and this, we'll spend most of our time on this, uh, God's plan for cosmic renewal. And uh, So verse 14 begins with this, therefore. And uh, as I often say to you, you know, when you see a therefore, you need to check and see what it's there for. Boom, boom. Excuse me. Um, you know, because what follows is a, is a consequence of what he's just been saying. So it's, it's there for a reason, it's, and he's leading you in an argument. And um, so what follows now is the consequence of what he's just been talking about in verse 13 and, and before. And now, when you, when you look at verse 13, look at this. Look with me at verse 13. And he says this, and it's not very encouraging. He says, I will punish her for all the feast days of the Baals, the foreign gods, uh, when she off- burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me. And it's not very encouraging. And you say, well, what's the therefore then? As a result of that, what is God going to do? And you might think, well, he's going to spell out in detail what the punishment is. But actually, he doesn't do that at all. He does something completely different. He says, therefore, because of all this, there's going to be a new kind of relationship that is, I'm going to establish with my people. 
And that's interesting, isn't it? Because when something goes badly wrong in our lives, we expect some sort of consequence, some sort of retribution perhaps, when we do something wrong. But as we have seen, there, you know, there, there will be some judgment on the people of Israel. But that judgment is not the ultimate reality, the ultimate truth that God is concerned about. Sin and evil do have their consequences. But in God's mind, that is not what is ultimate. God's judgment is not what is ultimate. What is ultimate is God's purpose to fulfill all that he has promised. To gather a people into fellowship with himself. And so although this begins to look like a failure, actually it's not the end at all. And God is, about, is going to do something else. So a number of subheadings I want us just to kind of focus on as we go through this. Uh, the first one is in verses 14 and 15. And what God is describing here is a kind of new exodus. So you may remember the story of Exodus. Um, and, uh, and you can see that this is about Exodus. Look at the end of verse 15. He says, uh, And there, shall be, uh, there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So that's a reference back to the Exodus. And what he's saying is, what I'm going to do now is, is kind of like that Exodus in the past. And, um, and where do they go in this exodus, this new exodus? Well, uh, if you look again at verse 14, he says, I'll bring her into the wilderness. What did, what did Israel, where did Israel go after it had left Egypt? Well, it went, Israel went into the wilderness, to Sinai, to the desert. And so this is a kind of new Exodus that he's speaking about. He's using the imagery of the past, the events of the past, to point forward to something else that's going to happen. And see how he brings about this new Exodus. How how is God going to treat his delinquent people who have forgotten him? He is going to allure them. He is going to entice them. And he's going to do that by, by speaking tenderly to them. See how gracious and kind and loving God is. In spite of all the sin that deserves ultimate judgment, he is still going to speak kindly and tenderly with a father's love to his people. And uh, see, this is, this is how, God, how God is, you know. He's, he is gracious and good in all his ways. But the important first step in that Relationship. We'll come back to this more later. Is is that they need to be led out into the wilderness. They need to be led to the place where they learn to trust in God alone, because in the wilderness there's nothing left else left to trust in. Uh, and that's what they had to learn in the first Exodus. Now we'll come back to that in a, in a moment. Um, but this this wilderness experience is is a bit like stripping away all the security of what you had before. You know, in Israel, Israel, when it was in Egypt, um, although it was in slavery, there was kind of a lot of security about it. 
They used to think about the pots of meat that they enjoyed, even though they were slaves. And that all has to be stripped away. But that's a necessary first step uh, before the blessing can come. And, and that blessing then is expressed in verse 15 in her vineyards. I will give her her vineyards. The, and that's, this is the idea of the, vine, the, the desert becoming this fruitful vineyard. You know, there's, there's nothing there. And then God says, I'll give you this vineyard and I'll build it. I'll make it. And it'll be fruitful and be a place of blessing. And you may have, so in verse 15 it also mentions this valley of Achor. And you may have no idea what that is and I had to look it up. Uh, but, <laughs> but it is the place, you shouldn't be laughing at the preacher. <laughs> but the valley of Achor is actually the place where, you may remember Achan, Achan and in Joshua chapter 7. And uh, remember that Achan held back some, some of the goodies of uh, the destruction of a city for himself. And he wasn't supposed to do that. And God knew that. And God had to carry out judgment. And, and so Achor was the valley where, where Achan and his family were put to death as a place of judgment. But now you see, what he says in Hosea 2.15 is, this valley of judgment now becomes a door of hope. So you're led into the wilderness, but now it becomes a door of hope for you. It's kind of, you've got to pass through this to get to the place of hope. Which leads us on to the second subheading, uh, which is in verses 16, 17. And for this heading of, subheading of, of a shamelessly stolen a sermon title from history, the The sermon title is, and you may have to think about this, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. So Thomas Chalmers was a great Scottish preacher in the 19th century, and he preached a sermon. I I think this title is probably more memorable than the sermon, actually. But, you know, the title is great. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And what he's getting at is that when somebody becomes a Christian... And you fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he grips all your attention and your desire. Then suddenly all those other things that you loved are are expelled. Expulsive power of a new affection. And they're cast out of your life. This is what it's like to become a Christian. To receive Jesus Christ expels all those other loves. Everything changes for you. The expulsive power of new affection. And this is what we see here. um, That when God allures Israel to himself, that once again she will love her her husband and will call God her husband. Not think of him as an alien. And the name of the Baals, the, the foreign gods will be cast out, will be removed from her lips. She will no longer love those Baals, those false gods. And instead, she will love her husband, as she should have done. She should do. And this is a reminder, I think, that that experiencing the blessing of closeness to God, and this is a practical point for us, 
the blessing of experiencing the closeness to God goes hand in hand with actively casting out the bales in your life. You know, the false gods in your life. The things that you love. The things that maybe you secretly love and nobody else knows about. But actually being willing to say, I'm going to I need to get rid of those things so that I can give myself wholly to God. Because one expels the other. You can't have both. You can't have two gods. Or more than one god. More than two gods. So this is the practical point. Uh, And I, I urge you to think about that for your own lives. What are the things that I really love in life? And do they in any way impinge upon my love for, the, for God, for the Lord Jesus Christ? Because God wants you to, to be undivided in your giving your attention to him, in your devotion to him. Here's a third subheading. There are new covenant blessings to be had with God, with this new arrangement. Uh, so verse 18 speaks of a covenant. Uh, and I will make for them a covenant on that day. Now, it's kind of a strange effect of the covenant because he focuses a lot on animals. Uh, A covenant that day with beasts of the field, with birds of the heavens and creeping things in the ground. And then, uh, in relationship to military things, I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land and will make you lie down in safety. Um, So two aspects, one to do with animals, one to do with war. And the two aspects are explained this way. With reference to animals, he's actually continuing this idea of a vineyard. So when you set up a vineyard, uh, what you need to do is, and we saw this recently as we looked at the, one of the parables, is that you need to build a wall around the vineyard to protect it from thieves and robbers and animals that will come in and eat all the fruit and trample down the plants and stuff. Uh, you need a wall, a protective wall. And, and so that when he speaks about a new covenant with the animals, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about God arranging things so that the people of God are protected and guarded against this kind of marauding behavior, a new kind of relationship. And, and then the other effect is the effect of, of war, uh, the reference to, to war. And this has a particular historical um, reference because one of the things you look at, if you look at the historical narrative in Two Kings that goes alongside Hosea, uh, you'll see that Israel had this kind of ambivalent relationship to Israel, Assyria in the north and Egypt in the south. So two great powers vying for supremacy in the region and little Israel in the middle of it. And Israel doesn't know what to do. And sometimes it wants to go with Assyria. And sometimes it wants to go with Egypt. And, and the, the whole point is, at no point do they seem to want to go with God. So they're putting their hopes in these nations rather than... And, but it never works, really. And so the threat of war is always around. The threat of damage and danger uh, is, is there. And so... What God is going to do is fix all that in, the new covenant, in this new covenant arrangement that he's making. Now, of course, in Hosea, it's, all things become, it's not quite so clear, perhaps, as it appears later, for example, in Jeremiah. So Jeremiah chapter 31 speaks explicitly of the new covenant. 
and the new relationship that the people of God have to God and to the law of God. But it's, of course, it's anticipating the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ and through his spirit, men and women are giving themselves, once again, to the law of God. All by grace, of course. That God changed, so changes people that they love the law and it's written in their hearts. And so this is what Hosea is doing here, is anticipating this new covenant that's going to come. So that's the third subheading, the new covenant blessings. Fourth subheading, the beauty of the new creation in this new, with this new marriage bond. And you see this, this is the cosmic aspect of it. And it's God who takes the initiative in this new marriage bond. So verse 20, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. I will do it. I will do this. I will betroth you to me. And it's not, so it's really important we get this because uh, it's not as though, you know, God is sitting up there in heaven and he looks down on his people and he thinks, oh, not again, they've failed again. You know, they just, they just keep wandering off and doing their own thing all the time. What am I going to do? You know, and, and eventually just says, I give up, you know, and sits in heaven and kind of tucks away to himself and waits for you to come back to him. You know, that's what some people think God is like. <laughs> He's he's sitting up there waiting for you to come back to him. Actually, what God is doing is taking the initiative and saying, I'm going to save my people. I'm going to do it. I will act. I will make sure that my people come to me because I will allure them. I'll speak tenderly to them and they will come. And they will be betrothed to me and they will be bound to me forever. And that will not be broken. And so he goes on in verses 21 to 23 to paint this picture of not only how, how they respond, but how the whole earth then is, is renewed. Because it's, the earth begins to answer to, to, in various ways to God's initiative. Uh, look at how the, everything answers. I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow for myself in the land. Uh, and so on. Uh, and here we're seeing that all of uh, all this life bursting forth as a result of God's goodness and his kindness in this new creation uh, around this new relationship between God and his people. It's a kind of picture of new heavens and new earth. With all its fruitfulness and bursting forth of life. And we see just at the end there, all the judgments that were foreshadowed in chapter 1 are going to be reversed. So you remember the names of the the children of Hosea and Gomer. So there's Jezreel, uh, there's uh, No Mercy, and Not My People. And... All of those things are going to be reversed. So the judgment of Jezreel is going to be reversed. God will have mercy on no mercy. So things will turn turn around. And the people who are not my people will become my people. In this new plan, this new covenant. And this is all coming by the gracious, mighty hand of God as he brings about the fulfillment of his redemptive purposes and fulfills all his promises. 
So that's the first section. Quickly then, here's the second part of the passage from verses 1 to 5 of chapter 3. And here we see redemption, more specifically redemption and restoration of the people of God. And, and actually it comes back to earth with a bump um, because the Lord speaks to Hosea and he begins to speak about his wife, uh, who's, not mentioned, who's not named here, but um, it is obviously Gomer. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. And you may just, just to recap a little bit on the, the structure of these chapters. Um, it starts with that strange instruction to Hosea in chapter 1, uh, where he's told to go and take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, which doesn't sound very promising. Um, and we don't know whether that means uh, she was actually a prostitute at that point or whether she had the propensity towards it um, and eventually came to fruition. But here it is now in chapter 3. We're back with Hosea and Gomer, and it has come to fruition, at least. And the point of telling the story that way and for God to give those instructions is so that Hosea understands, gets a sense, a personal sense of the grievance that God has against Israel for its delinquency because he experiences it in his relationship to, to Gomer. She, he is horrified as he looks at her giving herself to another lover. And and Hosea has to go back, goes, goes to literally buy back Gomer. I mean, it's a horrific situation. I mean, here she obviously has given herself into prostitution. And she's in the thrall of, of somebody, some pimp or something that's, that's got her. And she ha- he has to go and buy her back. I mean, it's an appalling situation that he has to go through. And so this is literally true for... So Gomer has done this. And it's literally true for Gomer. And Hosea has had to kind of go and redeem her and save her. But then God says in verse 4. For... So this is what follows now from what, what Hosea has, had, has just experienced in buying her back. He says, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince. You see, everything that's being worked out in the life of Hosea at this point is an indication of what God is doing for Israel. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince. Um, now at this point we are not sure what it is. We can see what, what, what it costs Hosea. But we can't yet see what it is that costs costs God. That God is having to pay something to redeem his people. And we know what that is now. We look back and we can see what that cost is. We can see that for God to redeem a people for himself, he had to give his one and only son, his only beloved son, that God gives that most precious of possessions that he has. That the Son of God would take upon himself human flesh and experience the ignominy of suffering and isolation and a brutal death and separation from his heavenly Father on that cross so that a people could be saved. 
Now, friends, it's really important we grasp the, the sense of cost to God. Because sometimes when we think about God in relation to our weakness and our failure and our sinfulness, we sometimes think, why can't God just say, you're forgiven? Why does he have to send Jesus at all? Why can't he just say, you're forgiven? It's all right, don't worry about it. And, but, but you see, forgiveness is never without cost. Never, ever. Not in human relationships, not in divine human relationships. You know, a simple example, you may owe me five pounds. You know, and I could, I could say to you, well, that's all right. Forget it. I forgive you that debt. And you go off happy. But it's not a cost-free thing for me to do, is it? Because it's cost me five pounds. <laughs> I've had to give up something to be able to forgive that debt. You know, a mother, and we should always bear that in mind when we speak about forgiveness. You know, a mother who you know, may forgive the murderer of her beloved son. And in, in a sense, it's just words. But she has to live without her son the rest of her days. It costs her to forgive. And it costs her to say those simple words. We should never be too ru- never rush into trying to force people to forgive too quickly without understanding the cost of it. But how much more with God that for him to forgive our sin, it costs him. It's not just a matter of words. It cost his very son. Well, that's not the end of this, um, of course, because the process of coming out of sin, you can imagine that uh, as Hosea goes to get Gomer and pays the price and, and takes her, there's still a process to go through to restore her back to, to normal life. And this is what God speaks of now in verse 4 and verse 5. And there's a a number of steps here that is worth paying attention to. Uh, And step one is the wilderness experience, which we touched on already. uh, But you see that there in verse 4. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Now this this is all about taking away all the things that you rested on before. Removing all of that, and in a sense going into the wilderness. Um, so that you are left with nothing except your husband, the God of heaven. And that's what the Israelites had to go through in the Exodus. They had to follow Moses into the wilderness. And you know they look back to the days of slavery, and they, they have rose-tinted spectacles, and they begin to look at it and think, "Yeah, actually, it wasn't too bad after all, really. You know, we were slaves, but you know we had pots of meat to eat, and uh, you know it was, it was kind of nice compared to this wilderness." <laughs> um, so they were mourning and complaining the whole time. You read it, you read it all the way through Exodus, and that's that's the way it was. But they had to learn to trust God in the midst of it. So the wilderness experience first. Number one, and maybe that's what people have to go through if they want to become Christians. You have to be stripped of everything else before you'll actually come to God. And then there's step number two, verse five, return and seek. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. 
Now, why the reference to David at this point? David's been dead 300 years. <laughs> well, of course, it's a prophetic David. It's not, re- it's not actually David. It's a symbol. It's a, a picture of someone who will sit on the throne of David, which we know to be G- Jesus Christ. And so, seeking and turning, turning and seeking God and his king, his appointed king, is the next best step. So you go into the wilderness, you're, you're stripped away of all the things that you rest upon, you discover you've got nothing else except God, and then the next thing is you turn to God and you, sit, you seek him out and you look for him, and you look for his king, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, and that's the point where you stop complaining about how difficult it all is. You start saying, you know, I need this God. I need this God. That's often what happens when people become Christians. You know, they, they're brought to the point where they come to the end of themselves and all their powers and abilities. So that all they've got left is to turn to God and seek Him and cry out to Him. And so the effect of all this is the third step, which is they shall come in fear to the Lord. And to his goodness in the latter days. They will come in fear to the Lord. Now look at, what what does he mean by fear here? He doesn't mean scared. He means reverent awe and love for God. Respect, honor, love for God. True love for God. Recognizing who he is. How great he is. How marvelous he is. How gracious and kind he is. How good is our God? And realizing that that's the person I need to live for. And then the other aspect is simply to know his goodness. You know, I think you can, we can never truly know the goodness of God until we have been brought to this point. We can read about it, but we don't really know it until we've come to the end of ourselves and we turn to God and we truly seek him. And then we discover how good he is. And that's what life will be like for a Christian in this new covenant. Under this new covenant arrangement, we experience the goodness of God. And I urge you today, if you don't already know him, to turn to him and seek him with all your heart and know the goodness of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, searching passage, uh, difficult in many ways, but Father, we pray you'd help us to truly seek you. And when we seek you, you promise that we will find you. If we seek you with all our hearts, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.